News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi Sarah this week. Well, speaking about what is happening on the ground in Ukraine, as we've been hearing on the news, Ukraine has rejected calls from Russia to surrender the port city of Mariupol. That's where residents have been besieged. They have little food left in some cases, little water, many places without power as that fighting continues. However, we heard from Ukraine's deputy prime minister that there is no question of any surrender that is not going to happen. Well, for the very latest on what is happening and what we're hearing from NATO leaders, so we are joined now by Reggie Cicchini in Washington. Reggie, thank you so much for being with us. Good morning. Let's talk a little bit about what's happening and the call for a surrender of Mariupol. What's happening on the ground or what are we hearing at this point in Ukraine? Yeah, so this this surrender in Mariupol was called for by uh, the Russian uh, government, by the Kremlin, to say that they wanted to see uh, the military in Mariupol lay down its arms in order for uh, military people to be able to leave, uh, for a humanitarian corridor to be opened up for the tens of thousands of people that have been trapped inside. But Mariupol City Council, Kiev officials uh, said no, they were not going to wave a, a white flag. So it is now unclear what is going to happen to those people that have been trapped inside this besieged city uh, for the last several days who have had no power, they've had no food, uh, there is very little running water throughout Mariupol, and it's unclear what Russia is going to do because this was an ultimatum that was offered uh, to Mariupol, uh, and it, it's unclear if they're just going to continue this kind of indiscriminate shelling that we have heard reported uh, as bombs dropping uh, every 10 minutes. The city has been almost annihilated, but it is key for Russia to try and get control of Mariupol because it helps them create a land bridge uh, basically across the water down to the port of Odessa. And you, you mentioned the indiscriminate shelling and certainly the continued attack and the targets that we've seen. Have those really ramped up or, or as far as what we saw yesterday? And do we know kind of how many people are left and what it looks like on the ground there? Well, I mean, look, yeah, this indiscriminate shelling has been going on and on across the country. It's extended as far west now, almost uh, towards uh, the areas of Lviv in western Ukraine. In Mariupol, we saw that art school that had been bombed over the weekend. 400 people were taking shelter uh, inside that building. Uh, and, and this is raising questions as to whether this is actually indiscriminate bombing or whether the Russian government is uh, is targeting civilian infrastructure because we've already seen hospitals and maternity wards uh, and other, and other uh, kind of civilian buildings targeted over uh, the last several weeks of this so-called military operation that Russia is carrying out. So it does raise concerns here. Is this bombing going to continue? Are we potentially going to see Russia continue uh, to use what it may have left of a stockpile of these hypersonic missiles uh, that the U.S. now confirms were used over the weekend? This is a growing concern, not only throughout Ukraine, but throughout the West as well. Do we have a better idea as well as far as the humanitarian crisis? We know that that millions have left, have crossed borders into neighboring countries like Poland. Do we have an idea, though, on how many people have left and, and what the humanitarian toll is? 
Yeah, look, according to the United Nations, 10 million people in Ukraine have been displaced already. This is a country with a population of 44 million. 10% of that 44 million, roughly 4 million, have already fled into other countries. In Poland, the, the, the city of Warsaw has seen its population increase by more than 17%. In the Czech Republic, there is growing concern that they are going to run out of supplies needed in order to uh, ensure the safety uh, and welfare of the refugees that have come into that country. Uh, but given the fact that millions of upon millions of Ukrainians have gone across Europe right now, there is a concern amongst the United Nations that aid could potentially start to dry up. It's unknown how long this quote-unquote military operation, or war as the West is calling it, uh, is, going to, is going to last. China's Red Cross has offered $1.57 million in humanitarian aid uh, to Ukraine via the United Nations. Uh, the United States, along with NATO and G7 leaders, have offered billions of dollars uh, in Ukraine. But this is going to become an escalating crisis, not only in the countries where people have fled to, but also around the world where there are, were already uh, crises linked to food shortages uh, that could be hindered now by this ongoing crisis. So the United Nations is saying it's not just the millions of people from Ukraine, it's tens, if not hundreds of millions of people around the world that will feel the ripple effects of this. And what are we hearing from uh, other leaders as far as NATO leaders meeting this week? And what do we expect we might hear from uh, U.S. President Biden? So President Biden is actually expected to hold uh, a phone call today with the leaders of France uh, and Italy, along with Boris Johnson from the United Kingdom, the German Chancellor, to talk about the coordinated response uh, to uh, to Russia's war uh, inside uh, Ukraine. This comes ahead of this uh, extraordinary NATO meeting that has been called very quickly for this coming Wednesday, where it's likely that we will hear uh, another sanction package uh, unveiled on Russia, on Vladimir Putin, on people that are close to Vladimir Putin in an attempt to try and further cut Russia off from uh, the Western world, from Western finances. Uh, it's unclear, though, if this is going to do anything to deter Vladimir Putin and potentially have him pull his troops out. We know President Biden will also travel to Poland later this week. It's not likely that we are going to see President Biden move into Ukraine. The Pentagon, the White House, says that this is simply too volatile of a situation. In the past, we've seen presidents go into active war zones like in uh, Iraq or Afghanistan, but oftentimes the airspace in those countries was controlled by the United States. Uh, in Ukraine, uh, there's an inability to, to really control anything. Uh, so the threat that would be posed to President Biden is simply too grave. That said, there is a growing push, especially amongst Republicans and within Ukraine itself, to have President Biden on the ground in Kyiv. And as far as what we're hearing from Ukrainian President uh, Volodymyr Zelensky, the talk of a no-fly zone, do you think there will be more discussions on that? Or is that even something, uh, I mean, we've heard that that's not uh, an option at this point. Do you think it's something that's still being discussed? Look, there have been discussions and, and ongoing conversations about how it could be implemented, but we've heard from NATO Secretary General that a no-fly zone is simply not going to happen because they see it, A, as too much of an escalation when it comes to Russia, but B, also the potential here that a NATO country would wind up shooting down a Russian plane, and that would essentially uh, you know, invoke what, what could become World War III or some kind of nuclear back and forth between the West uh, and Russia. So the no-fly zone, despite the fact that we've heard repeatedly from Ukrainian officials, including President Vladimir Zelensky to have that put in place, uh, it's likely not going to happen. That said, military analysts have also pointed out that Russia suffered such heavily, heavy losses when it comes to its military aircraft uh, that, uh, that a no-fly zone might not do much because Russia might start relying more on long-range or these hypersonic missiles to which a no-fly zone, no -fly zone rather, might, not, uh, might not do very much. All right, uh, Reggie, we will continue monitoring uh, what happens uh, throughout the day. And thank you so much, though, for your time today and for bringing us up to date. Thank you.
That is Reggie Cicchini joining us from Washington, and uh, we will keep you up to date on those talks and what happens on the ground in Ukraine. We need to take a short break. When we come back in about 45 minutes, the province's camping website goes live. Many British Columbians will be booking their spot. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, as you've been hearing on the news, CP Rail trains have ground to a halt across this country. Thousands of workers began that long-anticipated strike early yesterday. It involves about 3,000 engineers, conductors, and other train employees. The Teamsters Canada Rail Conference issued a release yesterday saying a lockout was being initiated by the management at the Calgary-based railway. So what kind of an impact is this going to have on supply chains, especially if we're talking about food. Well, Sylvain Charlebois joins us now, Director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie. Thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. Uh, What do you think in the short term with this stoppage of the trains, what does that mean for the food supply? Uh, (laughs) It means a lot of things. Uh, So outbound, obviously, we have to think about fertilizers this time of year, Farmers around the world actually will need uh, cane fertilizers. Uh, that's that's going to be severely compromised. Uh, uh, also, you have to think about the the stuff that we actually manufacture in Canada to sell to the rest of the world. Uh, so uh, different uh, beverages, uh, uh, potatoes, and things like that. Those are going to be compromised as well. Inbound. Uh, we have to think about grains for livestock uh, in the prairies in particular due to the drought last year. Uh, they couldn't grow enough grains. Uh, and, of course, uh, the Port of Vancouver, where you are, uh, there's lots of stuff coming in, and uh, that has to be moved from the port uh, inland. And uh, Sien is there, but the CP also covers uh, some of the capacity, which uh, is not there right now due to lockout. So do you think we're going to see then a change when it comes to prices or is it more kind of what you just laid out, the the fertilizer, getting feed and all the things that are needed to keep the system running? Well, I I think there was uh, probably some movement prior to the uh, labor dispute. Uh, I think some companies actually uh, were ahead of of the dispute, uh, knowing that the, it was going to happen. We've been hearing about it for a few weeks now. Uh, most most observers, including myself, were fully aware that uh, there was the potential of seeing a, a labor disruptive disruption. And so, uh, if we are to see anything, uh, any evidence of a, of a labor disruptive CP as a consumer, uh, it, it may actually take at least a few weeks. Uh, you may see some uh, some. Some uh, some inventories being affected at the center of the store, maybe uh, with packaged goods. Uh, other than that, uh, if if the if the conflict lasts maybe four or five days, we should be fine. Even eight days, ten days, but after that, it's going to get tricky. The CN dispute actually lasted uh, about eight days in 2019, and we didn't really see any any evidence at retail of, of the labor dispute. 
That's uh, encouraging uh, on the short term. But uh, like you mentioned as well, if we're talking about things like getting fertilizer to farmers, and and here we are, it's uh, the second day of spring and a very important planting season. Could you do you think that we could see uh, repercussions then if if not as much as planted because farmers don't have those supplies that it's going to be kind of the next cycle when we're talking about harvesting and the harvest will be smaller? I think that's the most worrying uh, part of, of this labor dispute is because uh, uh, right now with the conflict in Ukraine, uh, we all know globally that uh, that uh, the world is, sh- is short on fertilizers and uh, all eyes are on North America to deliver the goods, whether it's fertilizers or to actually produce more. And, and you can't produce more this year without fertilizers. And so this is really not happening um, at a good time. In fact, uh, I would say that the world cannot afford a lengthy labor dispute at CP Rail right now. And what about the the issue as well with grain and how much we rely on Ukraine to supply the world with grains? And and clearly that's not going to be uh, happening uh, as much or or, we don't know at this point uh, to what extent, but, but losing that market as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. So the, the, Black Sea is is the key area where you get uh, to ship a lot of grains out of of, uh, of Ukraine and Russia, uh, and I expect uh, Africa, middle, the Middle East, to be impacted by by shortages. Uh, North America should be okay, but again, we're we're going to be uh, under a lot of pressure to sell grains abroad, uh, and so that that pressure is real, and costs are going to be much higher than last year. Uh, but again, if you want to sell or buy anything, uh, you need boats, you need trains. <laughs> Without trains, you can't do much in North America, I can tell you. It's the backbone of, uh, railways are the backbone of our ag economy, really. Uh, you mentioned the, what happened in 2019, and at this point, too, the the federal labor minister is saying that he's hoping that both sides will be able to somehow reach an agreement, but it, it does appear that perhaps we could see government step in to, to potentially end this. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's, uh, it's been... Uh, I'm... It's a, it's a lockout, so I'm not a labor expert. Uh, I don't know how you can resolve a lockout, uh, a strike. Uh, of course, you can always force people back to work, but a lockout, I, I don't know. What I can tell you, though, is that for years, and I mean decades, we've been trying to figure out a way to make uh, railways an, an essential service, and we have not done that yet. I think it's time to think about it again. And uh, Sylvain, just looking as well at uh, kind of the, for lack of a better uh, phrase, the perfect storm, not perfect, obviously, because we were already talking about some supply chains uh, that we were seeing product shortages, uh, rising fuel costs, uh, the ongoing uh, Russian invasion in Ukraine. It it just seems like this is really adding to that or adding to uh, what could potentially be uh, a very rough time for when we're talking about freight capacity, when we're talking about uh, keeping things moving. Absolutely. Um, I think there's a better appreciation for logistics in our country <laughs> as a result of the pandemic and, and everything we've experienced. But um, this, is, this is a human-induced problem. And uh, so last fall, of course, in B.C., we all, we all saw the devastation of Mother Nature with 
atmospheric rivers, the heat dome, and everything else. So uh, obviously, uh, those uh, events were destructive. But this time, this is a, this is a human-induced problem. Uh, I, I'm sure we can come up with something. And I think a lot of people are hopeful and hoping that that will happen as well. Uh, when, when we talk about so what happened before as well, that the eight-day strike didn't have a huge impact or we were able to recover from that. Uh, so, so are you confident, though, if that happens again, even with everything else going on, we will be able to recover? There won't be a huge negative impact? Uh, I think, regardless of, uh, of, the, of, the, uh, of, the, of the lockout's length, uh, duration. Uh, you're looking at a week per day. Uh, so, in 2019, it took eight weeks to recover and, and go back to uh, the regular schedule. Uh, it's the same thing. The Port of Montreal in 2020 was the same thing. Um, so, the Port of Montreal was a was a was a problem when it went on strike. Uh, I see this situation as being similar. All right, Sylvain Charlebois, we'll leave it there for today. But thanks, as always, for your time. My pleasure. This is Mornings with Simi. The gross grind. They were near the top of that trail where there are still some pretty wintry conditions. And Doug Pope is joining us now, North Shore Rescue Search Manager, to talk more about this. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me on. Uh, what is uh, happening right now as far as the trails on the North Shore and the conditions uh, that we're seeing? Well, it's definitely still winter up there. So just this last past storm we've been having, it's been snowing at about six, 650 meters elevation and above. So for people that know the North Shore, that's about halfway point of the grouse grind area is getting snow, fresh snow. So it's um, things like avalanche conditions, um, being uh, prepared for hiking or skiing in the snow. Uh, do you find generally at this time of year when we've, we've just started spring uh, that people, if it's a sunny day, people kind of forget that there's still winter conditions on those, on those trails? Oh yeah, for sure. That's basically the scenario. It, you get a nice spring day where it's warm and sunny down down in uh, Vancouver and people want to go for a hike and they forget that just not very far away, it's still winter. And in this case of the uh, unprepared hikers, was it a case of somebody thinking they were going to go for a day hike and not realizing that there were still snowy conditions and snow on the ground? Yeah, exactly. So um, things can go from bad to worse if you're not prepared for snow. So the trail gets covered in snow so we get people lost um, off the trail because it's harder to follow um, in this case they weren't prepared for the snow and the, what they had on their feet so they couldn't they got to a point where it got very steep and they couldn't go up and up or down on their own and we had to come and help them so things to avoid that um, would be uh, micro spikes they're like uh, slip on crampons on your feet poles and adequate clothing for a day hike like that. So kind of the, the same advice that, that we give or that people are advised to take into account whenever they go hiking, having those essentials that to make sure if you do get into trouble, you're able to, to call for help? For sure. 
So uh, our website's a good re- resource, um, adventuresmart.ca has a really good w- resource. And what, what we recommend is people um, think about the three T's. So three T's for us are trip plans. So plan your trip, look, look at what the conditions are, um, there's some resources online, um, especially some hiking websites or your friends are a good resource that have hiked the area so you know what the conditions are like. And then train is the other T to make sure you have the appropriate training for your destination. And you, and training would be um, outdoor knowledge and uh, fitness level for the, the hike, that kind of thing. And then the last T is to take the essentials, and that changes depending on the hike you're going to go on and um, the weather conditions, but it's generally um, adequate clothing, adequate footwear, um, a light communication device, um, and way to navigate the trail. And then uh, for winter conditions like this, it's micro spikes at least or crampons, poles, and maybe even an ice axe if it's steep terrain. Um, and uh, if you're into avalanche terrain and people don't realize that you, you don't have to go very far in the North Shore Mountains to hit avalanche terrain. For example, the, the Grouse Grind and uh, the BCMC that's uh, popular um, is, does have avalanche terrain in it, and it's had avalanches in the past. Um, I should also note that, that typically the Grouse Grind is closed in the winter and it is closed right now. It's managed by... Um, Metro Vancouver Parks and they close it for safety reasons because uh, it is very steep and slippery right now. All right. Uh, it's a good advice and a good reminder, uh, especially as we start uh, seeing the temperatures rise. Uh, Doug, we'll leave it there for today, but thank you so much for joining us and talking about you're, this this morning. You're welcome. Thanks for having me on. Have a good day. All right, you too. That is Doug Pope, North Shore Rescue Search Manager. And again, uh, advising people, if you do head out, as he just mentioned there, making sure you have all of those supplies. And uh, as we, I think we talk about this every year at this time, or whenever the grouse grind is closed, uh, people hopping the fence or finding ways to go on that trail. And in this latest case, a couple of hikers had to be helped down from that mountain when they found themselves unable to move on that steep terrain. This is Mornings with Simi. Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi this week. All this morning, we've been asking you about camping and whether or not you are a camper. If you are, what is the draw to camping? Maybe you have a favorite spot you like to go. If it's secret, that's fine. Don't need to share your secrets. But what is it about camping that really draws you to heading out and sleeping in nature? Are you a tent camper? Or perhaps you prefer more of a glamping when going out into the woods or on the side of a nice lake. Well, we're talking about this this morning because British Columbians are getting their first crack at the new camping reservation website. It launched at 7 a.m. this morning and already thousands of people have been going on that site to opt to uh, get their BC Parks website booked. You can only book a couple of months in advance, but the province saying this is a new and improved site with lots of more flexible search options and ways to cancel bookings as well. Well, Louise Peterson joins us now, Executive Director of the Outdoor Retail Recreation Council of BC. Louise, thank you so much for being with us. 
Thank you for, for letting me call on your show. Uh, what are your thoughts on this? I don't know if you've had a chance to check out the new website. A lot of people are, but what are you yeah. hearing about uh, this and people's uh, people's lo- love of going camping? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, the site the site looks great. You know, like it's definitely vastly improved. It's got some new features. It's a lot more user friendly. Because you have to kind of think about, you know, like this has to kind of serve, a, a, you know, a very broad. Uh, uh, it has served like all British Colombians, um, and and yeah, so so it's looking good. Some, some some good changes that have come with the reservation system. Uh, like up until last year, you were able to, uh, to to book a site and then not show up, and and um, so like lots of sites just kind of you know they would just kind of sit there idle, and it would be very upsetting to those of us, so those of British Colombians who have been working so hard to try and get a site. Uh, so that's one of the good changes, sure. So the the cancellation policy uh, then uh, it sounds like that is quite the improvement. That yeah, that that's definitely a, a much needed improvement that that BC Park heard a lot of you know comments uh, about in in previous years. One of the one of the things one of the policies that haven't changed is that um, you know in, in in the busy little mainland, uh, pretty much all the sites, uh, nearly one hundred percent of all the the, the 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 campsites are by reservation only. So, and that means you know, like if you go like 100 kilometers in each direction, you're, you're unable to just kind of be able to show up um, and, and get a campsite. And this is quite a problem for, for those, of the, the, those people, and I'm sure we talk about quite a, a large proportion of the, the population who, who don't know their schedule in advance. So, um, you know, they're not going to, you know, be, be ready at 7 o'clock in the morning, like two months in advance of, of when they would like to go camping, you know, because they just, they just don't know. So, so we, we are hoping that, that BC Park might like to, um, you know, also, also make, make, make some changes to that. Um, you know, it, the, the, you know, hopefully like just bring back, you know, first come first serve to uh, site to, to all the different parks or bring in a staggered system so that, uh, you know, a number of sites are, um, held back by BC Park and then the lease into the reservation system a, a couple of days in advance. I mean that that would make, that would enable pretty much all British Columbians to have like a fair a fair go at getting a campsite. Right. So how far do you have to go then at this point if you are somebody that that isn't planning ahead for whatever reason? Maybe you can't plan ahead. How far do you actually have to travel then to get to a site where they do have some uh, campsites that aren't part of the reservation system? Well, yeah, you, you definitely have to drive several hours. Like I was looking at at the campsite uh, at, at the park. Like in a, in a 100 kilometer radius of, the, of, of, of Vancouver, and there was, and that was, I think, with the exception of one one small park, uh, that there it was all by reservation. So that that is a problem for people that uh, maybe don't have access to like reliable transportation, or or just who, who do not, you know, who's not able to to drive very far. If you go further out, then you know, um, you know, things are very busy in the Little Mainland. If you go if, if you go further out, like 100 kilometer plus. Yeah, you, you're going to kind of find uh, more sites that are available for comfort. So, and what are your thoughts on the the two month window? In that, again, you can't plan if you were say going camping in August, you wouldn't be able to book it now. What are your thoughts on on keeping it in those two month windows? Well, I mean, I, I think I think a lot of people would like you know some certainty. Uh, they, they, I mean, they they they, they, are, they are absolutely fine with a you know a, a two month window. I think I think it makes a lot of sense, but yeah, we just definitely like to see just a little bit more flexibility so that uh, you know the the, the the camping experience is accessible to as many British Columbians as possible.
And are we seeing a, a lot more people? I know during the the pandemic, certainly people were traveling within the province because there there weren't a whole lot of other options. But has that led to camping becoming even more popular? Yeah, I, yes. Um, I know that our, our Minister of, of Parks, uh, George Heyman, uh, has, has mentioned that as well. Uh, yes, and I think you know all of us who, who kind of went into into a, a park last year, you saw that. I mean, because like the rest of the world was closed for us for, for, for a long time. That is changing now. So maybe like will will we'll we continue to kind of see the pressures on on our parks? I mean, probably because now you know like tourists from Europe and from the US are going to come up here. It, like the parks are, you know, they, they are such a a fundamental part of you know what, what what you do when you when you come to British Columbia when you live in British Columbia we need more parks you know that, that's the, that's the thing you know part the, the number of campsites and recreational opportunities within parks have not been growing at the same rate as the population or that just the interest in in, in getting outdoors and we know that it's just so it is so healthy for us plus you know camping in in these parks are you know one of the most affordable ways that we can go away with our family or with our friends. Uh, yeah, certainly it is uh, one of the more affordable ways, like you said, for a lot of people. Uh, according to the, the Park Service, so the Park Service says that they've added about 1,700 new sites in the last few years since 2017. But it sounds like the demand has grown so much that, that like you're saying, uh, you'd like to see more. How, how many more sites do you think or, or more spaces would you like to see in B.C.? I, I, I can't say for sure, but, but, you know, I think we need, we need to really kind of focus on where the demand is. Like, there's a, there's a huge demand in, in, uh, in, in, in Metro Vancouver, Sea to Sky. So, so making sure that we get more opportunities there would, uh, would definitely be, uh, you know, a really high priority. Uh, you know, because a lot of us, just, we just kind of want to go away for like a weekend. And, I mean, this is really why memories are made. And a lot of us kind of remember it from, from when we were, you know, growing up. You know, it's, I think that is part of the appeal. It's rustic, it's, uh, and, and it's something that we, we remember. So yeah, more, more parts in, 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 in the busier areas, I think, should be the, the main focus. And, and you mentioned that it is an affordable option for a lot of people. Uh, is it priced well, do you think, as far as the services that are offered and what people get for what it costs? Yeah, it's so, so, so it tends to be kept below the prices of private campgrounds. So, I mean, so that's, and then definitely hope, hopeful that it's going to, keep, to, to, to remain that way so that it is, it truly is, you know, affordable for, uh, you know, as many British Columbians as possible. Um, I haven't built a site this year, um, but, but like in previous years, I, I would say that, yeah, like a tent site is, uh, is, is, is priced fairly. All right. Well, I know a lot of people uh, have been logged on to that site today. Uh, the new website says it's going to handle about a thousand bookings per minute. So it's going to be busy uh, for sure. But thank you so much, Louise, for joining us and for talking more about this this morning. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me on the show. All right. That is Louise Peterson, Executive Director of the Outdoor Recreation Council of BC. And we want to hear from you about this as well. Have you gone on the website? Were you one of the early risers and you were on there right at seven o'clock when it launched today? If so, what was the experience like? Were you able to book the campsite you were hoping for? You can only book two months in advance. And uh, I've just been, well, I was on the site earlier looking around, so Certainly lots of places booked, but do you agree with Louise as well that it shouldn't take you that long? You shouldn't have to drive for hours to get to a campsite that isn't 100% bookable, that there should be some first come, first serve options. This is Mornings with Simi. 
Well, taking a look at what's happening in Ukraine, and it's estimated more than 3 million Ukrainians have fled that country looking for refuge in other countries. Some are headed to Canada, and that's going to be happening in the coming weeks and months, and that means BC will be welcoming people. So who is signing up to host them? Well, our show contributor, Raji Sohal, joins us now to talk more about that. Good morning again. Hi, Jill. Yeah, the Ukrainian Congress told me that there are about 250 people in their database uh, who have just identified themselves as potential hosts in BC. And although there's a huge Ukrainian population here, they're not all Ukrainian. Uh, The potential hosts come from so many different backgrounds. A lot of them have no ties whatsoever to Ukraine. They just really want to help out. And I talked to a South Surrey couple, uh, Sally Howard and her partner, Randy Schultz, And basically, they were watching the news on the TV and online from the get-go about four weeks ago, and they were just shocked at the images that they saw of the invasion. It all seemed so sudden, and it was those images that really hit home for them that made them want to apply to host displaced persons from Ukraine in their own house. You just sit there, and you just become absolutely despaired as to what you're looking at, and you you, you see the, the human dilemma and the, the human sacrifice and loss. God, what, what can you do? What can you do to, uh, to help? Donation is the first thing you think of. And, and that's obviously effective and, and needed. But I see this as a, well, what it is, is, is a humanitarian crisis. And, and the essence and the, the heart of the matter, I think, is to is to interact humanly in a time like this and and seeing the the dilemma of displacement uh then i thought well you know why why not bring a family or what remains of a family uh here where we can provide safe shelter and housing but also that humanness of uh the beginning of maybe a a rebuilding of of their life yeah, Randy thinks that he and his partner, Sally, can be good hosts. They don't uh, require money to host uh, anyone. They don't uh, you know, need any support from the government in order to do it. He's 62. He's a retired teacher. They don't have kids in the house or anything like that. Um, but he also said they have the time to help displaced persons from Ukraine integrate into the community, that they have a lot of connections, and that he sees that as being a big part of uh, being able to host. Uh, but he's also sensitive to the issues faced by refugees because his own parents were interned at a Japanese camp in Indonesia, he says, during the Second World War. And he said that although that's an experience that he's far removed from, um, Randy said that just emotionally he has compassion for the the trauma that people from Ukraine coming to Canada and fleeing war would have. Maybe by connecting directly with someone or someone's that I can be part of a humanitarian solution. Mm. Well, there's always challenges whenever you do something new. I mean, we have a lot of space. It's not it's not configured for for multiple families, but it it sort of can be with just a little bit of jigging. And and the area now that we use as a as a rec room would become sort of their their living space. And and you know we have a piano there. And Sally said, "Gee, what about the piano?" And, Sally is just a retired music therapist. And I said, well, play it for them. You know, it's, it becomes part of that human thing. 
Yeah, Randy talked a lot about just making do with what they have. They don't have, you know, a lavish home. It's nothing fancy, but just that they have enough to provide for a family coming from Ukraine. And he has no experience uh, doing anything like this, like hosting a foreign family. Um, but here's what he said he hopes he can provide a host family, as a host family. Well, I, I hope that they have a place to a place to catch up and a place to, to uh, feel safe, firstly, to regroup, to... Uh, find some solace and and hopefully get strength from the fact that that Sally and I have opened our home up and that that you know with all that distance and all that 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 uh, difference between us that that there are still people that that care about these people and and want to see them get better and get into a better place you know so it's just human support yeah. Wow. What a, a thing to do and to just decide because uh, like he said, like he told you, they have the space. They don't have any experience doing this, but they're, they're open to it. Did you get any sense or did he know when uh, they might be hosting people? No. And he's checked in uh, many times since applying to see uh, when that's going to happen. You know, normally it seems, Jill, like the government, when it comes to refugees, rolls out the program first and then people sign up. But because things happen so quickly with the invasion in Ukraine, uh, things kind of went backwards here where their grassroots community effort was like the first on the scene. Uh, That's what happened with the Ukraine Congress just like right away um, several weeks ago. They started this database to start collecting names and it was before any kind of government participation or integration or anything like that. So they still don't even know what the program would look like to host. Uh, No idea. They've just signed up and they're waiting. And there are some, I've learned some refugees uh, that have already made their way here and have um, actually moved around several places, been at someone's home, just kind of, uh, again, through grassroots effort, just uh, um, integrating there for a while temporarily, and then have moved on to a host family's um, home for for a longer situation. And I also talked yesterday to Anita Huberman from the Surrey Board of Trade, and she just told me that the Surrey Board of Trade is going to be very involved with helping people uh, uh, from Ukraine integrate into the community in Surrey um, as soon as these families do arrive. And we're expecting greater numbers in the coming weeks and months. Uh, I liked, too, how he mentioned his wife is a retired music therapist because uh, and having the piano, it just creates such a picture. And and what a lovely thing to to also be able to offer someone. Yeah, absolutely. There's this video online of uh, actually a family um, in Ukraine that after their home has been shelled, they the woman goes in and she plays piano. And it's just this like instance of strength in the middle of this horrible invasion. And um, I think that this this family that I talked to in particular is is really curious and interested about like how to help um, Ukrainian families that come here uh, integrate culturally too. And music would be a big part of that for them. All right. Uh, What a a very interesting story, and uh, likely others will be doing this as well. Raji, thank you so much. Thanks, Jill. This is Mornings with Simi. 
Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi Sarah this morning, all this week, in fact. And just a reminder, coming up a little bit later on this half hour, we have a four-pack of tickets to the HSBC Canada Rugby Sevens Tournament. It's coming to BC Place next month, so you will have a chance to win those tickets a little later on. Right now, though, we're taking a look at a new study that shows the smoke from wildfires destroys the ozone layer. Research are warning that if major fires become more frequent with a changing climate, more damaging ultraviolet radiation from the sun will be able to reach the ground. The researchers used information from the Canadian Space Agency's atmospheric chemistry experiment, the satellite to measure the effects of smoke and the smoke particles in the stratosphere. Well, Peter Bernath is a research professor in the University of Waterloo's Department of Chemistry, also a lead author of this study, and joins us now. Thanks so much for being with us. It's a pleasure. Uh, So this is looking at forest fires, at wildfires, those uh, smoke, the particulate in the air. How much or how how concerned should we be uh, with the effects of that on the ozone layer? Well, it's a new discovery. I mean, it's never been seen before. The effects of smoke on the ozone layer were just discovered basically from the Australian fires of 2020. They were so big that the effects were very obvious. And um, we're looking now at, you know, fires over British Columbia and so on. Uh, They're smaller and the effects will be less, but should probably be seen also. Um, It's not a dramatic effect in the sense that the reduction in ozone from the Australian fire is about 10%. But it's not negligible either. And it does cause increased UV radiation on the ground and uh, is a health hazard. And I mentioned that you used some of the information that had been collected from uh, the Canadian Space Agency's the Atmospheric Chemistry Experiment satellite. How were you able to do that, or how did that work? Yeah, I'm the mission scientist for this ACE uh, satellite, and the way it works is we look at the sun passing through the Earth's atmosphere, and during sunrise and sunset, we see how much of the sunlight has been absorbed, uh, and that tells us how much Uh, you know, concentrations of the molecules involved. And so we've been doing this now for 18 years, so it's a big success for Canada. And we have more than 44 molecules, so we can see the things that create ozone, the things that destroy ozone, and ozone itself. And so we see these dramatic changes in uh, gases, uh, for example, that contain chlorine that destroy ozone. And so we have some idea that the smoke particles are catalyzing the the destruction of ozone by creating more reactive molecules, particularly chlorine-containing molecules. Hmm. And you, you kind of touched on this there, but once it's destroyed, is there a way to fix it? Oh, yeah, it comes back. So after 10 months, it just restores back to the original levels. It's not a permanent effect. It's a When the smoke disappears, the ozone levels return back to their previous levels. Uh, so the finding then, or I guess one of the takeaways from that is if we, like you, you said, if we see more fires like the, the fires that we saw in Australia uh, in 2019 and 2020, more like what we've seen in BC, we could expect even more damage to that layer. That's correct. Fortunately, it's transient. When the smoke dissipates, the ozone levels restore. But Statistically speaking, you know, it, the UV does decrease, and over time, it does have an effect, um, but it's not a permanent damage to the layer.
Is it the specific type of smoke as well in that the, because it's a forest that's burning? Or, I mean, will we see the same kind of thing, do you think, if uh, I'm, I'm thinking back to when there was a big RV fire uh, in, in BC, it was happened around the same time as the flooding. Not that that's as big as a forest fire, but does it matter what the fuel is for the fire? I don't think so, but what matters is the size of the fire. So the thing is, you have to have a huge fire because normally the smoke from the type of fire you described doesn't get into the stratosphere where the ozone is. So you need a big fire to punch through the tropopause, which is a kind of a barrier, and then that injects the smoke into the stratosphere. It's not clear that the fuel matters, but the size of the fire and the heat um, that, that punch through the into the stratosphere. That's what matters. Right. And when we talk about the, the ozone layer being destroyed and then regenerating, I, I guess the concern would be then if the, the fires are happening one after another or we're seeing more frequent forest fires and wildfires of that size, would it be that the ozone layer doesn't have enough time to repair itself, uh, to regenerate before another fire hits it? Oh, yeah, that's a possibility. If, the fires, if these huge fires become more frequent and overlap in time, yeah. Uh, did the finding, uh, like you said, you've been monitoring this or, or lead scientist on this too. Were, were any of the findings, what is it surprising to you at the, the level at which uh, these fires lead to, to the destruction of the ozone layer? Uh, very much so. So what's new is that the chemistry on smoke, it was not known at all that smoke um, was responsible. Smoke, we have actually seen the, the spectrum of the smoke particles, so we know the surface has water on it and it's acidic and it's these surfaces that catalyze the destruction and this type of chemistry is completely unknown so it was not suspected by us or anyone else for that matter um, that the smoke in the stratosphere could even do this so it definitely was a big surprise it, it kind of makes you wonder, too, when whenever we have forest fires or it's that time of year and people are always told, especially if you, say, have asthma or something else to stay inside, it makes you wonder if it can do that kind of damage to the ozone layer. What's it really doing to us when we're breathing it in? Well, that's, in fact, better known and better studied. And Indeed, the smoke particles are very destructive. This, you know, PM 2.5 is how the scientists measure that. And it's well known that damages lung tissue and causes uh, cancer. So there's lots of studies that prove how damaging the smoke is to human beings and, and wildlife and uh, all ecosystems, in fact. Are we able to measure then as well, when we talk about when the ozone layer is, is damaged before it rebuilds, just how dangerous that is to human, to human life, though, as far as radiation and more exposure? Yes, that's well known also. The people have been studying that for a long time. So Statistically, they know the correlation between the amount of UV and the rate, for example, of skin cancer. And, and so you can estimate, you know, if, the, if it goes down by 10% for a certain period of time, statistically you can predict uh, what the increase in skin cancer rates are. So, so that's well known. The epidemiologists have been on this for, for many years. And, and finally, do you think then taking a look at this research and as far as more information or more, more of a push to as why we should try and not have these wildfires or try and keep control of these wildfires, are there any other recommendations or any other uh, takeaways from this? Well, certainly it's all uh, generally associated with climate change. And so this is one more thing that's, um, where, where climate change is increasing these fires and um, 
clearly, the more we can do to uh, prevent climate change will help uh, with uh, uh, this smoke effect uh, on the ozone. All right. Well, Peter, it's very interesting uh, research. Thank you so much for taking the time uh, to share the findings with us this morning. Thank you.